Good morning again. This morning we are continuing this story that we're in kind of the, the middle of. I recognize that I have two a very difficult task this morning. One is to take an ancient story and give contemporary application. And the second is to talk about something that isn't normally part of our world, at least the way that the old ancient world talked about it, and that's idolatry. We, we recognize that there are parts of the world that are still primitive and still have carved uh, uh, idols and, and, and many uh, gods connected to nature, but we're modern. We're, we are in the United States of America. Certainly, we have gotten past the idea of making an idol. Well, I don't think we're that far because idolatry is less about what you make with your hands and more about what you make with your heart. Our story picks up where Egypt uh, has moved from the nightmares of the Israelites into their daydreams. They've begun to long to go back. Uh, things have become difficult. They've, they're on a three-month, 40-year tour. Uh, Gilligan had uh, nothing on them. They are struggling with the idea of how long this uh, desert journey is going uh, to last. And so they have these incredibly longing looks back toward Egypt. Uh, they wanted a, a predictable, though difficult, labor in comparison to wandering around without a plan, at least one that they understood. They knew there is a promised land. They, they, they knew that they were walking that way, but they, they'd have no idea how long it's going to take and what it'll look like when they get there. They want a place where they can drink. And the last place that they knew that there was plenty of water was the Nile. And they didn't want the bitter swill that comes from the oasis that occasionally pops up in the desert. They, they wanted to eat at the Egyptian buffet. They didn't want to eat any more of the wilderness beach diet. Manna, manna, and more manna. And only enough for a single day. It's very hard to plan tomorrow's dinner if you don't know what's going to be available. Well, they actually did, and they didn't like it. Three months has transpired from the day that they walked out of Egypt and to where they are now, which they've arrived at Mount Sinai, which is one of the large mountains on their way. And, and, and Moses has said, y'all stay here and I'm going to go up and meet God. And there's a cloud covering the mountain so they can't even see what is going on there. So the next morning, Moses gets up and says, I'll, I'll be back. They have no idea when he's coming back. Now, they have, they've experienced enough to get them through some of their doubts and concerns. I mean, gracious, they just saw 10 plagues. They saw the Red Sea part. They, they have experienced manna from heaven. They've gotten uh, access to water. I mean, they have seen some tremendous things. Even as they get close to this mountain, they see... Uh, lightning and they hear thunder and there's fire and smoke. It's not like these folks have no idea what, who God is and what God has done for them. I think he's been 
quite clear up to this point. They've even heard God say, hey, I want you to be a holy nation that is a, a radical counterculture. I want you to be this new people. And I, and I want you uh, to know that this is why I rescued you. This is why I delivered you from the land of Egypt as a slave to come and be this mighty nation, to be my people. And that's why he starts out when he gives them the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. The truth is they had every reason to think that Moses, not only that Moses was going to come back, but God was always going to be faithful to them because he's already been faithful to them up to this point. But as Moses' days being away became weeks, their hearts that were so alive and so so warm toward God began to cool off. This is what doubt can do to us. Doubt has such a power on us. It can literally begin to get us to question what we were once sure of. You, you see it all the time in students who leave our student ministry to go off uh, to a university. And in that setting, the power of doubt can cause them to begin to doubt some of the things in which we taught them, in which you taught them. Moses has been gone a long time. They grew impatient, waiting. And so what do they do? They take things into their own hands. They become cynical. Is God ever going to come back? God's never going to come back. Moses has abandoned us. And if Moses has abandoned us, maybe God has abandoned us. And so they they decide in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. You can hear the progression. They waited, they doubted, they planned, and then they made. This is kind of the way it works with us. Deep in our hearts, if we want to understand ourselves, this is how it works. We want something, we think we need something, And when it is delayed, when it is not delivered in the time in which we want it, we begin to what? Doubt. And our doubt becomes in of itself a question to the point where if it lasts long enough, we take things into our own hands and we do things that we should not do. And so in this case, in this period of time, they fashioned a golden calf out of their earrings. You see that in verse two. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears and the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. My mind is, this has got to be a lot of earrings. (laughs) So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears. Why not other places anyway? And he received the gold, this is Aaron, from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And if that wasn't bad enough, they began to worship it. They began to bow down to it. They began to say that it represented their gods. 
Because that's what it says in verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I think it's no accident that when they finally get this desire fulfilled by making this golden calf, they use the very same words that God used in saying, I'm creating you as my people. Where he said, I'm the Lord your God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, is the same words that are being used here after they fashion this representation of what they want. They say, this represents the God's who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. You see, they, they began to want something, and what they wanted was quite good. We tend to think this is all bad here. When we get to Exodus and we get to this chapter 32, we hear this story and we think it's all bad. What they desire, what they want is quite good. What do they want? They want the presence of God. They want to be with God and they want God to be with them. And when Moses goes up into the cloud and they can't see what's going on up there, the last person who was the bridge between them and God was Moses. And so if Moses is gone, the threat is is that God is gone. It's not just that Moses abandoned, they can replace Moses. The issue is no Moses, no God. And so they began to think that their gods had abandoned them. So they desired to have God with them. That's a deep desire. The problem is they began to think that they could make a representation of God and that be God to them. That he could service all of their needs and wants and desires, and particularly the one of God being with them. You can, you can imagine as they, they take these earrings out of their ears and they fashion them in, and, and now they can carry God wherever they want. And when they want to have a conversation with God, they can, they can go to wherever the golden calf is, is stationed and they can have a conversation and, and almost rub it like a luck charm when things aren't going well. And they can make sacrifices to it in order to get the gods to be appeased and love them. You see, the way that the psalmist describes what's going on here in Psalm 106, he says it this way. They exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox who eats grass. The way that Paul describes it in Romans 1, he says they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so at the core of what's going on here is an exchange of the true God for a a representation of God. In fact, one of the great debates about Exodus 32 is the people of Israel, are they breaking the first commandment or the second commandment. The first commandment is have no other gods before me. The second commandment is make no graven image of me. Which is it? And some would say, well, there's both. I understand that. But what's at core here is, are they making a new God or are they fashioning a representation of the one true God? And we don't really have the answer and we don't necessarily need the answer to that. But there is a warning about trying to create an image of our one true God. 
And that's this. Any image that you and I could come up with, any picture or representation or, 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 or golden calf, anything that we would come up would be limiting God because we can't fully comprehend him. He's beyond our comprehension. The, the, to know a, a being that's omnipresent, we tend to think of that in two dimensions. And so God can be everywhere. But do you realize he could be everywhere in time, all at the same time? That when he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, he's, he uses the present tense. He doesn't say, I was the Alpha and I will be the Omega. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's a way of, uh, of Bible speak to say that God is in the present, in the past, and in the future, all at the same time and every point in between. And see, it blows our minds to, to, when we begin to think about and contemplate the way the Bible presents God. There's no image that could even get close to the, the, the awesomeness of how he reveals himself as creatures trying to get a mind around a creator. And so one way to think of idolatry is, is any way that we approach our needs apart from God. A way to think of it is, is that something or someone ends up becoming before God himself. I need this in order to uh, have a reputation, to have success, to have finances, all of those things. One writer put it this way, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. That is, when you're lying in bed at night and your mind begins to dream about tomorrow, is he even part of the picture, much less the whole picture? Anything you seek, he goes on and says, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. That's what they were doing. You see, they were, they were trying to fashion this golden calf. Why? Because God chose to reveal himself a different way and in different time. Anything you feel will give you life, give your life meaning or value or significance or security instead of God. And that's really important, particularly here in the United States, because we want what? Meaning, purpose, significance, security. And anything that's more fundamental to you and to your happiness than God. It's with that understanding that you understand, that, that we can understand that the golden calf is just a surface sin. It's not, it's not their real problem. They made a golden calf because they wanted the presence of God. They felt they needed God always with them to protect them, to deliver them, to provide. It's not that he hasn't already done those things. They have plenty of evidence that when the time comes, he's there for them. But they doubted that as time goes on, as days turn into weeks, he's there, he's up there for 40 days. They want access to God, but because he's decided to give access in his way, and we'll see that more in a couple of weeks, they build this golden calf that they can carry around with them and control themselves. You see, their hearts longed for security, for safety, 
for provision, to know what they're going to have for dinner tomorrow, not just what's for dinner today. To know that their children will grow up in a safe environment. They're not going to starve to death in the wilderness. They're not going to spend every day, all day, walking in the desert. Their hearts longed for what? What? The last time they remember having those things. That's why the longing looks over their shoulder toward Egypt. They wanted what they could get there. Security. Even though, even though they were beaten and harassed and oppressed, even though genocide was part of their story, they still thought that was better than what they were experiencing now. They wanted to go home. And this is the paradox, isn't it? That the things that enslave us are also the things that ultimately we want. That's the paradox. We want what captures our hearts. We feel like we are in control of them because we chose them, but it's soon we don't have control over them. They have control over us. And it's a blind spot for us. It's one of the things about idolatry is we can't really see them well ourselves. Paul Tripp in one of his books said that the difference between physical blindness and spiritual blindness is that the former is blatantly obvious. While the latter often goes unnoticed, a fundamental part of being spiritually blind is that you're blind to your blindness. G.K. Beale put it this way. He said, we become what we worship. If, if we worship success, if we, if we worship money, if we worship nice things, if we, if, we, if we worship relationships, if we worship, and you can put almost anything in the blank, we worship those things. And what that means is we serve. Those, those two words in the, in the ancient Hebrew are the same word because what we worship, we serve. He went on to say that the Jews worshipped a cow because they were cows themselves. Verses 8 and 9, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff neck." people. So what do you do about that? If, if that's what it was like then, and we are like this now, is there a way out of slavery? Is there a way to enjoy relationships and success and uh, security without turning them into ultimate things? And if we've already turned them into ultimate things, is there a way that we can have freedom from that? And the answer is, of course, because we know the rest of the story. They're experiencing, but we know it. Some of us were, were watching uh, the movie, uh, The First Man. It's a story about Neil Armstrong stepping foot on the moon. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a history. And those of us who know history, and many of us lived in uh, 1969, know what? We saw it. 
And so we know the rest of the story. We know they get home. (laughs) No matter how dramatic Hollywood made it out to be, we know that he gets home. And a lot of those movies are like that. But it doesn't take anything away from the power of the drama itself, the story itself. And one of the things that really happens when we get into these kinds of stories is that we find out, oh, I didn't remember that. Like, I had forgotten that three astronauts burned to death before Apollo 11 left the ground as a test. I'd forgotten that part of the story. And there's part of the story that I wonder if when we read it, do we remember, wow, that, I can't believe that's embedded in this story. Listen to what I mean. This is verse 11. I'm going to go through 11 through 14. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them in the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent uh, from the disa- this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all the land that I, that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they will inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. So what happens here is that Moses goes back up on the mountain and starts pleading. God... They deserve your wrath. I'm I'm not going to mitigate what they did. I'm not going to minimize it and say it wasn't that big a deal. It was a huge deal. Nor am I going to say you're unjust if you wiped them out and started all over again. I'm not not saying that. What I am saying is that if you could find mercy and grace, then your promise would have been fulfilled, by the way, if he had wiped them out and started all over or saved this group. But he said, imagine this story. Imagine your glory if you redeemed these people who turned their backs on you while we were up here talking. Why does God relent? This is something that that was read to you in verse 30 through 32 that I, that I, I skip over this and I, and I think, how can we miss this? It's kind of, it's kind of like that part in the movie where, where the three astronauts die. I had forgotten all about that. How do you forget that? Verse 30, the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Did you hear it? Moses goes back to God and says, I know they deserve your judgment. But if you won't forgive them, blot my name out that they might be saved. So what Moses is saying, he's saying, this wrath of yours, it's just. They've really done wrong. But instead of wiping them out, wipe me out in their place. Don't let their names be unwritten 
in the book of yours. That's what he's, he's talking about. He's talking about an atonement. The New Testament has a theological deep word that we seem to have lost. And the word is propitiation. That is, there's a, there's a wrath due sin. God has to be just. He has to make the books come to an account. And the way that he does it is he judges all sin. Jesus Christ says, instead of giving it to them, give it to me. That's what 1 John 2 says. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who took, he's took the judgment for us. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. On the cross, Jesus took all that we deserved and he accepted it as if he had done it himself. That's a propitiation that that happens on the mountain of the law for us that we might have grace, that we might be forgiven. And therefore, propitiation for us becomes a means by which we can what? Repent. That we can say, God, yeah, I really blew it here. I, I turned to an idol. I turned to something else to get what I really thought was important rather than you. And we're all do this. Let me give you an understanding of repentance, but in order to give you that understanding of repentance, let me just tell a little bit of a story. And the story goes like this. You may not realize this, but you are my biggest idol. Not you as an individual, but collectively. You know, when I was in college, my desire was to be president of the United States. Everybody laughs when I say that. <laughs> Starting to hurt my feelings. Um. But what's behind that is someone who comes out of, uh, of a background who doesn't feel very significant. What's the most significant thing you can be? In my little historical world, it was to be president. And when God said, no, that's not the path that I want you to go on, I went into ministry. Well, all you end up doing is taking that idol and replacing it for another. And the church can do that. You... You can start in a, a, a small church and then it can become a medium church and then it can become a large church. You see that it's not necessarily that it was wrong to be president. It was, it was looking f- that presidency was going to give me something that I wanted most. And that's the same thing with you. And, and when things don't go well, and a couple of years ago we were really struggling a little bit in what I perceived of measurements of success, I began to work that and push that and push you. And so part of repentance is simply a conviction that I'm guilty here. When we, 
when, when you begin to begin to, to confess your sin, you begin to say, I've done something wrong in naming it. Not only its intent, but also its impact. Because sometimes our intents are good, but our impacts are awful. And turning from that particular sin back to God and recognizing that if, if God wants you to be a success in the world's eyes, he'll do that. And if he doesn't, it's not like he's lost any glory. Part of repentance is a restitution. You know, the, the eager intent to make things right when things are wrong. And reconciliation, the the healing of relationships that end up getting broken in the process. You can imagine if you're if you're pushing, you're running over people. But here's the cool thing I love about our church is that we forgive because we've been forgiven. And that creates rejoicing. I love Tim Keller's quote. He says that repentance without rejoicing is despair. If, if there's no forgiveness, if there's no taste of sweetness, then there's no real repentance. And when you forgive me and when I forgive you and when we forgive each other, we can rejoice. We can rejoice that God has forgiven us and we can rejoice at one another because there's nothing better than many in a community that you can say, you know, I really blew it here. Will you forgive me? And they say, yes, of course. Because that's what heals relationships, when we no longer hold our sins against one another, when we really do work toward restitution and reconciliation and ultimately to rejoicing. This is why I think Martin Luther, when he, when he wanted to tell the church, man, you've really blown it here. This is in the 1500s, so it's been a while. Church, you've really blown it in all these areas. And he, he writes 95 areas that they've really blown it. Obviously, Luther is meticulous. And, and, and he put them in a specific order. And so when he, he tacks these 95 ways that he believes the church is aired onto the door at Wittenberg, the very first one, he said, all of life as a Christian is one of repentance. You see, we tend to think, I tend to think, that repentance is for when things go really bad, when somebody catches you, when, when, when things get out of control, and when there's no other re, uh, uh, a resource, there's no other uh, uh, avenue. Luther says, no, 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 no. It's not your last avenue, it's your first. Because all of life is a life of repentance. Begin to, to work that out. Imagine if those of you who are married, every day was an act of repentance. And not just one, but many. Imagine those of you who have oppressive employers. And every day, all day, is one of repentance. Imagine friends who tend to drift apart when things don't go well. And it's just easier to be indifferent. It's easier to just to withdraw from you than it is to deal with you. Imagine if it was one of repentance. Imagine children who seeing their parents, you know, 
when I gave you that instruction and, and I did it with such a harsh tone. I'm sorry for that. That was wrong. Imagine what that builds in the life of children. I believe the reason children don't repent is because they see their parents not repent. Because children only ma- uh, uh, mimic what they see their parents doing. Which is one of the reasons I, I encourage children to be in worship, even if they don't understand what's going on here. Our job isn't to make it intelligible. It is for them to watch you worship. And then they learn over a long period of time. Imagine if our community saw our church as a repenting church toward them rather than the place where, hey, we've got the truth, come to us. We'll set you straight. It radically changes everything. Exodus 32 is part of the story. It's part of our story of redemption, of being redeemed, of constantly God bringing things into the light and for us to deal with them with him in his spirit, to become more like Christ. Let's pray.